Students of scripture sometimes discuss what's called the law of first mention. Now, it's not really a law so much as a practice of studying a particular word as it's first mentioned, as it's first included in the Bible. From there, from a word's very first usage, we can better understand another passage or another topic or another theme that, uh, of God's revelation to us. The law of first mention takes us back to God's original intention for his creation, his original intention for his people. Take, for instance, the word fruit. We encounter that word fruit on the very first page of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 11 uses the Hebrew word for fruit, the word pere. Now, I'll give you a little hint that in seminary, when we had to memorize Hebrew and Greek words in a completely different language, it was all Greek to me, uh, we, we had, these, we had these, these practices, these ways of trying to remember what a word meant, what a word was, by associating it with an English word. And the word pere, we would remember by thinking puree, right? So, yeah. So, Genesis 1, verse 11 Hebrew word for fruit is pere, not puree, but close. We read in that very first page, very first chapter, very first book, we read, Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear pere. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. Well done, yeah. If you continue through the end of that first page in the first chapter of the first book, you will read, God then created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In other words, both male and female uh, represent the image of the invisible God. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. That's the same root word, pere. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Notice, the law of first mention tells us two things. On that very first page, first chapter, first book, tells us that there is fruit early on in creation. Fruit is something that God creates for his people, for their nourishment, for their sustenance. God creates fruit. And then, did you notice? God invites his people to continue that work of creation. Not to only to enjoy the fruit that he's created, but to be fruitful themselves. The fruit that God creates is not for God. The fruit God creates is for us. And then the fruit that we create is not for us. It's for the world. The Bible is a book about fruit and fruitfulness. And this morning, I want us to think together about fruit. I want us to think about fruit because we're continuing this series on uh, the Holy Spirit, trying to understand the promise and the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit. We're calling this series Forgotten God because if we're not careful, we can neglect the role of God's Holy Spirit, especially us dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterians. We might not want to admit it, but we have earned that title Frozen Chosen, haven't we? We show up and we sit on our hands, don't we? But Jesus promised a life full of the Spirit, a life indwelled by the Spirit, a life equipped by the Spirit. And part of that life in the Spirit is fruitfulness. 
Now, with that law of first mention uh, in the back of your minds, I want to invite you to hear from Galatians chapter 5. We're starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul declares, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Hear that again. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. It's a military term. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, in Paul's day, a yoke was a regular sight. Oxen could be seen harnessed by a heavy yoke, straining to pull a load while they were prodded and pushed with sharp sticks. But a yoke in Paul's day was not just for oxen. It had become a common metaphor for the law. It was a crushing reminder of all the commandments that we could not keep. All 632 of God's laws that we couldn't keep up with. It was a weight of the curse that we deserved for our disobedience. And while us city slickers might miss the impact of this metaphor, for Paul's original audience, this metaphor was not lost on them. In the first century, it fit. And here's why. In Galatia, in Roman culture, there were essentially three different social classes. These three different social classes were made up of, on the top, a third of the people who were Roman citizens. Another third below those Roman citizens were those who had been slaves, but then had been freed from their slavery. And the lowest third were still enslaved. They were forced to serve others because of their social class or a debt that their family owed. Now, when we think about slavery, when we hear that word, we remember the abhorrent sinful, almost, I would even say satanic slavery that existed in our country. And we understand it through that particular lens. And we should do everything we can to understand how that uh, occurred and, and make sure it doesn't happen anymore. But we need to understand that in the, in the first century, in the Roman culture, it looked a little bit different. Uh, it wasn't so much uh, connected to a particular people group or ethnicity, but there were these three different classes. And everyone knew who was who. And here's why. Freed slaves, those who had been enslaved, wore a particular hat after they were freed. Everyone was given this hat, and they would wear it to symbolize, I used to be enslaved, but now I'm free. And those at the very top of the social ladder, at the very top of these three classes, were those who were citizens. And this highest social class got to wear togas. I'm not making this up. Now, outside of attending a toga party, togas are terrible. They had only one purpose in the ancient world, and this was it. Wearing a toga proclaimed your status. It said to everybody else, I'm on top. I'm in charge. I am to be respected and honored. Now, Roman senators who were at the top of the top would even wear a purple stripe and others would wear gold rings. We read in the book of James, James tells us, don't show favoritism to those wearing fine clothes and gold rings. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, in your congregation, when you gather for worship of Jesus, there are these different social classes represented. And the same was true here in Galatia. There was a pecking order. Everyone knew who was who, who was wearing a hat, 
Who was wearing a toga? Who had those gold rings? Everyone knew who was who. Who was free and who was not? So imagine as this letter is read aloud, the Galatians could look around the room and they could see clearly who was enslaved. They could see clearly who had been set free and they could see clearly who was a citizen in their toga with the purple stripe and the gold rings. When they got dressed for church that morning, they had no idea that a letter from the Apostle Paul would be read aloud. But they could look around and notice Paul's assertion. He says to everyone in the room, no matter what they're wearing, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Notice, that is one single action that happened in the past that has effects into the present and the future. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. That word freedom is both a noun and a verb. It is both the means and the end of the Christian life. He continues, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Can you imagine how that sounded in that church when it was first read for the first time? Can you imagine looking around that room to see people who used to be forced into slavery now wearing their hats? Can you imagine how that sounded to those wearing those togas that Sunday morning? Use your freedom not to indulge the flesh, but to serve one another in love. It's the most countercultural statement. It's so unbelievable. Why would Paul make such a bold command? Why? Because he says the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Can you imagine that was happening in a church? (laughs) So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So you are not to do whatever you want, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred and discord and jealousy, fits of rage and selfish ambition, dissensions and factions and envy, drunkenness and wild parties and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Which almost sounds like those oxen again, doesn't it? Weighed down by a heavy yoke, being poked and prodded to keep moving. That picture illustrates the tension within this congregation, within this church in Galatia. Remember, the recipients of this letter would have heard it read aloud. They would not have it bound in a nice 
leather Bible in front of them, they would have heard it read as they sat there in whatever they were wearing and all that it symbolized. But their social status there in Galatia was not the only point of their division and their dissension. They were also distanced from one another in their responses to the gospel of Jesus. Their responses to the gospel went in one of two ways. And in these verses, Paul tries to correct both of them. Some were convinced in Galatia that to follow Jesus, to truly be saved, they had to continue filling the whole letter of the law of the Hebrew Scriptures. All 632 laws we have in the Old Testament. They wanted to maintain the rights and the rituals and the rules and the regulations of religion. For them... That yoke was a symbol of superiority and self-importance. Look at me and how religious I am. On the other hand, the other response for those who were weary and worn out by rights and rules and regulations, they did not want any more religion. So they gladly throw off the yoke of the law, leaving behind that weight and that burden to live however they wanted. Anything goes. What happens in Vegas might not stay in Vegas, but it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> now, which of those two are you more drawn to? Which of those do you find yourself in more often? Is it following the rules and rituals and regulations of religion? Is it saying, man, out with the whole thing. I'll live how I want. Depending on the day, Depending on the issue at hand, depending on how much coffee I've had, I can go in either direction. Sometimes within minutes of each other. Sometimes I follow the rules religiously, following the letter of the law to the T. But then I get really worn out by it, and I throw my hands up and shrug my shoulders. Ah, who cares? Now, before you take out your jump to conclusion, Matt, and start assuming the worst, let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, my son, Moses, is playing baseball next door at St. Hedwig. Um, I am an assistant coach. There are four coaches. The head coach is a member of this congregation and a current elder. Then there's me, a pastor. The other two coaches are also Christians. And we are convinced that even though this is a rebuilding year, and we don't have many wins in the win column, we are going to continue to play with class. We are going to continue to follow the rules. We are going to continue to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So every Tuesday or Wednesday, Thursday or Saturday, when we show up ready to play some baseball, we are following all the rules. We are making sure we set the example. Not for the other team, not for the parents, but for those boys. Nine and ten-year-olds. We want them to look at us and how we're reacting to the game being played. We want them to say, okay, that's how to live a, a fruitful life. We're following all the rules until yesterday, the bottom of the first inning, a foul ball was called fair. And then we went to tag a runner and he was out of the baseline. And at that point, I was done with the rules. And I was so glad I had this little mask covering my mouth. I didn't say anything, but I was gritting my teeth so hard that I thought that they might break. Because I was ready. I was ready to go, you know, kick the dirt at the umpire and tell him what's what. It's true. 
My wife will be here in a little bit. Um, you can ask her. The other coach even saw the bad calls. Mario, his name, he's on the third baseline. He looks over at me and says, Curtis, you're not saying much. You're just gritting my teeth. Oh, man. Because I knew if I opened my mouth, bad news. I don't know about you. Sometimes we follow all the rules to the T, to, to the letter of the law. Sometimes we get tired of that and we just throw our hands up and do whatever we want. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if that sounds familiar, you are not alone. <laughs> Paul writes this one letter to this one congregation who have responded in two very different ways. Um, he tells them that either response, whether following all the rules to try to get God's love and affection or doing whatever we want because we're free and who cares. He says either of those responses leads to a kind of slavery. Whether legalism or license, we can become enslaved to either one. It's like the story Jesus tells about the man with two sons, right? The first one asks for his inheritance early and goes off and squanders the family's money in wild living. The older brother stays home and does everything his father would ever ask of him. On the one hand, you have license. On the other hand, you have a kind of legalism. Those who, who are legalistic are bound to lose their freedom by following the rules, and those who are, bound, who are given to license uh, will abuse their freedom. On the one hand, we can lose our freedom. On the other hand, we can abuse our freedom. And Paul affirms our freedom. It's for freedom Christ has set us free. It's both the noun and the verb, both the means and the end of the Christian life. Paul affirms our freedom, but here's his point. He says, freedom should bring forth fruit. We have been freed from the command to keep the letter of the law, those rules and regulations of religion, all 632 of them. We have been freed also from our slavery to sin, to living that old way of life. We have been freed in either direction, but our freedom should prompt fruitfulness. Paul knows the law of first mention. He knows what it says in that first chapter on the first page in the first book. But he knows that there is also a, another scene just a page later. He knows there's another scene that depicts fruit taken off the tree, the one tree we weren't supposed to touch. That the first chance we got, we took it. Notice Paul's long, dirty laundry list of sin. Notice what he mentions there. It's not just the shameful sins of the younger brother, right? It's not just uh, the younger brother's sins. Paul doesn't only warn us about sex outside of the covenant of marriage and, and drunkenness and fits of rage. He doesn't only tell us about those sins. He also reminds us of the danger of ambition and jealousy and envy. See, some of those are really shameful sins that good church people would shake their heads at. But he says, listen, you church folks who follow all the rules and rituals and regulations of religion, you might be falling into some of these other hidden sins, the ambition and the jealousy and the envy. It's not, it isn't the, only the, the obvious, I don't need religion, younger brother sins. He also calls out the older brothers hidden behind religion sins. He says both ways of responding to the gospel bring slavery to either legalism or license instead of freedom for fruitfulness. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, there's a whole bunch of things we learn from these verses. 
means a whole bunch of things, but let me just highlight a couple for us. Before we come to the table this morning and remember this Jesus who has freed us, who by his own body has set us free from those rules and regulations. If you hear that dirty laundry list of sin, both those older brother sins and younger brother sins, if you feel convicted, whether by those respectable sins or or those hidden sins, both legalism and license, if you feel kind of called out and you feel a little bit convicted and you want to start beating up on yourself, don't do it. Instead, take heart. Take heart. Because if you feel called out, if you feel convicted, and you feel like there is work to be done, if you feel like you haven't arrived yet at the fullness of life that Christ has invited you into, take heart. Because that's good news, that the Spirit of God is at work within you. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin. And so if we see sin in our life, guess what? In a way, it's good news that we recognize the Spirit's work. Secondly, secondly, it's not your job to produce fruit. Did you notice that? The fruit is not the fruit of Diane or, or the fruit of Jim. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's job to bring forth fruit in your life. Your job is to keep in step with the Spirit. That's it. Not to be pulled in one direction or another but to keep in step with the Spirit. Think about apples on a tree. The apples do not give the tree life. The apples are a sign that the tree is alive. And so when we are connected to the Spirit, when our roots have gone down deep into the good news of the gospel, then life will occur. Fruit will grow. A life that displays the fruit of the Spirit reveals our connection to God's Spirit. Think about it this way. Um, So often, if we become convicted of sin in our life, we can become convicted of something, whether those obvious sins or those hidden sins, our tendency might be to look at ourselves really, uh, really closely and examine everything about ourselves. It's it's kind of like the metaphor of of someone walking in the snow. Maybe you've heard it before. Um, If we're trying to walk through a, a, a big field full of snow and we're looking down at our feet... Chances are in about a half mile we'll look back and because we've been looking down at ourselves, our path will zag this way and that. But, on the other hand, if instead we set our sights on what is ahead and look directly at where we want to go, well then our path is going to be much more straight. See, Paul tells us, keep in step with the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work to bring forth fruit. And thirdly, Paul uses that word fruit intentionally. Paul knows uh, the law of first mention. He knows that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Paul knows the world of agriculture. He knows that our growth is gradual. Just like fruit that grows on a tree or fruit that grows on a vine. The fruit of our own life is a gradual process. We would love it if we give our lives to Jesus, we recommit ourselves, we take on a new spiritual practice and immediately see the fruit. But Paul says, no, no, no. The Christian life is a life where growth is gradual. And allowing yourself to be rooted in God's good news takes time before you may see the fruit. 
If we keep in step with the Spirit, however, fruit is inevitable. There was a, a story I read this week about um, a man who was, who was buried under a large marble slab. And at his burial, a small acorn fell into that marble casket. Have you heard this story? They didn't worry too much about it. It's only a tiny little acorn, right? So they lowered him into the ground. And, and yet over time, what happened? Well, that acorn, given enough time, it's inevitable that acorn will produce a power strong enough to break that marble slab. We would put our money on the marble. Paul says, put your money on the acorn. Keep in step with the Spirit. Growth is gradual, and if you stay connected to the Spirit, your growth is inevitable. Because the Spirit's work is internal, but before long, it will be obvious. And lastly, um, I want to point out that that fruit um, is is in the singular in this verse. It's tempting when we come to a list of uh, characteristics of Christ-likeness in the scriptures that we'll say, oh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I like joy. I'll just work on joy. (laughs) But fruit is singular. It's not as though we get to pick which fruit we want to show in a given day, which is why I was so glad that mask was over my mouth. (laughs) And I just gritted my teeth. Because I'll tell you, 10 and under baseball makes me want to go into a fit of rage sometimes. (laughs) But fruit is singular. It is not plural. We don't get to pick and choose. But here's the main application. It's keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And all of these characteristics of Christ-likeness will be shown in our life. Growth is gradual, but it is inevitable. May we not be pulled toward legalism or license. We hear a lot about freedom these days. May we recognize that our freedom should bring forth fruit. That Christ has freed us from this side or that. We are free. May our freedom bring forth fruit. May those around us look to us and recognize something different. Because we have been planted by streams of living water because we have let our roots go down deep into the good news of the gospel. May we not be pulled toward legalism or pulled toward license. May we instead keep in step with the Spirit, eyes up, moving forward. May our freedom bring forth fruit.